great pleasure to introduce Dr. Kamal Matani, who some of you will know already and some of you will get to know because he's the Deputy Director of the Centre for Evidence-Based Medicine and a practising GP. Um, and he's very kindly going to talk to us today on why on earth do we waste so much research. Thanks, Claire. Great. I feel sort of guilty keeping you in when it's such a nice evening. But, <laughs> so we'll try, we'll try and just make it so it's, um, it's brief but makes the point. So definitely, I, I, I recognise some faces, and if not, hopefully I'll get a chance to meet you again soon uh, in one of the courses. So as Claire said, I'm a GP, uh, I'm deputy director, so I'm a researcher and, and, a, and a tutor as well. So I thought we'd just spend a little bit of the evening uh, on this nice evening talking a bit about research. And I know you're doing your study designs, or some of you are doing your study designs module as well this week. Okay, so a little quiz. Some of you may know this already because you're well-versed with the, with the literature. But how much per year spent globally on health and medical research? Roughly, globally. This, this was probably a figure about a couple of years ago. So it's probably gone up since this figure, but have a guess. Globally. Three billion, Three billion? okay. Seven million. Seven million. Billion. billion, yep, okay. Good, thanks. 30 billion. 30, so a bit higher. Yep, anyone going to go? Higher, lower? <laughs> 40 billion. 40 billion. Oh, we're getting it. Okay. High stakes. Okay. <laughs> I think I can see where this is going now. <laughs> All right. Well, actually, it's about 200 billion. <laughs> and in fact, it's probably more than that. It's probably more. That was, that was correct as, a few, as of a few years ago. Okay. So you probably know the answer to the next question. How much of research produced is wasted? 90%. Oh. <laughs> about 70%. About 70%. 90%. Okay. All right. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say you're about halfway between that. About 85%. So we're talking about the money. Over about 170 billion is wasted. And you can compare that to some of the GDPs of some of certain countries. And it's, 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 as you can see, as you'll find out, it's a lot more. In fact, I've written it, it's probably a bit more than this. So a lot of research, a lot of money is spent. A lot of research is wasted. Okay, so where does that figure come from, 85%? So, oops, oh, that one, right. Um, so if you, a starting point, and I'll talk about this paper a lot, have a look at Lance, the Lancet paper by uh, Ian Chalmers and Paul Glasgow. And this is kind of where they get this from. So of 100% of research, oh, this doesn't work, 100% of research, 50% is just not published. You never see it. Of the remaining 50%, about half is just not clear or accurate to use in clinical practice. Of that remaining quarter, half is flawed through an avoidable design that could have been, a design that could have been avoided, therefore it limits your application. So that just leaves about 13, so not even 15%, about 13%. So there's a big problem in science and health research. So it's a really good paper, and as I said, I will draw on that, and here you are, here is the paper. So they set out a sort of stepwise guide to where the sources of research is wasted and actually they start discussing where it could be improved uh, and resources um, um, targeted to prevent its waste. So a great paper, you haven't read it, really really interesting but I'll sort of draw on it as I said through the talk today. Okay why on earth does it matter? Well we end up producing or not producing research that cannot help patients and clinicians there are examples, and I'll give you one today, of research about potential harms that are not fully revealed. 
and of course we waste valuable resources in an ever, uh, ever dwindling environment of resources. Okay, so why is research wasted? Okay, point number one, choosing the wrong question for the research. And you're on a, some of you are on a study design, so it's particularly relevant. Okay, a few years ago in the UK, David Cooksey, Sir David Cooksey, was asked to do a review of UK research funding. And it's, a, it's an exhaustive review, the Cooksey Report, very famous. Um, and it, he identified sort of effectively two gaps in research. Anybody know this? <coughs> so if you look at the research pathway, if you like, from basic research, sort of bench science, um, working you know, in laboratory to prototype dis discovery and design and so on, clinical trials, health technology assessment, health services research, so this is starting to involve patients, knowledge management, and finally, actual healthcare delivery at the coalface. This sort of pathway of, from basic research to, to practice, if you like, identified two gaps. First gap in translation from this sort of area, sort of discovery phase, early clinical trials, to the next stage of late clinical trials. And the second gap here, sort of technology assessment, actually getting it into practice. Okay? So there were two gaps that particularly, but this sort of area was, was fine, basic research. But if you look, where does funding actually go to? And again, this draws on um, Chalmers and Glazier. Um, look at pure basic research receives by far the majority of funding. So this is pure basic research. So if we talk about this sort of research here, when we start thinking about putting it into practice, we think about applied research down this end. So this, and the, you'll see the gaps are more towards that end. This gets the majority of funding. So they did an audit in 2004, in the mid-2000, and found about 68.3% of funding goes to basic research, slightly less later on in 2009. But when you compare it to pure applied research, although it's going up, it's still a minor proportion of the funding. And actually, why does it matter? Why do we, I mean, I'm an applied researcher, so it matters to me, but why does it matter? Well, when they review, and this is just one example, and I'll talk you through it, when they review the impact of research, from basic science to, to patient care, if you like, direct patient care. You know, what matters? What, what makes a difference? This is just one example. They did, an ex again, an exhaustive review looking in mental health, tracking examples of mental health basic research and how it's been transformed or not into applied research and actual patient care. And so they came up with a number of conclusions, this being one of them. Despite significant advances in the biomedical understanding of mental health and brain function, these are yet to have much practical impact on the diagnosis and treatment of schizophrenia. So they, they use schizophrenia as one, uh, as an example. And this is actually from 2003. And so the, one of the overarching conclusions was, through a number of case studies, was that clinical research, so the more the applied nature, has a larger impact on patient care than more basic research, particularly when they analyze this over 20 years worth of data and research. So we need to focus on clinical research more than we are in biomedical. Now, that's not to say I used to be a biomedical researcher before I became an applied researcher, so I understand the field to a certain degree. So that's not to say that there isn't value there. But perhaps one of the reasons is we're not channeling funding into research that really matters to patients. Okay, problems with external validity. So now we've, we are thinking about applied research. So we're doing clinical trials. We're doing studies on patients. But we've got problems with external validity. So... Everybody comfortable with the, with the term external validity? Yep. So did the results of this study apply to my patient or my populations of patients? My population of patients. That's an issue. 
And when you look through randomized control, uh, audits of randomized control trials, this, this is just one of them. They look to see areas in which the randomized control trials for cardiology, mental health, and oncology, they took a sample. How would the included patients in, that, in those trials map to real-world patients, uh, real-world populations? And in fact, they said that some of the conclusions were 71.32% of the studies included in this review, the individual study authors concluded that RCT samples were not representative of patients encountered in clinical practice and or that population differences may have relevant impact on the external validity of the RCT findings. <coughs> so even when we're doing applied research, some of the findings, we're, we're excluding really important patients that they may apply to. And here are here's some of the recommendations. So they talk about from that paper about ways of managing external validity. So for example, they say broadening the RCT inclusion exclusion criteria. But we're all a bit edgy, well, a lot of people are edgy about doing that because they think, you know, well, it might dilute out my chance of getting a, an impact, uh, um, uh, a size, an effect size. It's something to think about really carefully when we design research. Okay, why else is research? Doing studies that are unnecessary or poorly designed. So this sort of, this sort of um, point lends itself to the fact that why on earth are we doing research when the answer is probably out there already? And this also highlights, and this is what Ian Chalmers and Paul Glasgow do, is highlight the value of systematic reviews. And I'm a big advocate of systematic reviews. Um, so everyone come, know what a systematic review is? Yep. So by seeking to search systematically, reproduce it for all available evidence on a given topic and summarize the result into a usable format. And there are numerous examples where f a failure to conduct timely systematic reviews wastes resources and harms patients. Everybody knows this story, don't you know? Yeah. Oh, I'll, no? Okay. Do you mind if I... Ex so, now, my son is two and a half, and one thing I learned when he was born was there are lots of baby books out there, you know, how to be a parent and all this, etc. But if he was born in the 1940s, 50s, we would have bought this book, okay? Dr. Spock's Baby and Child Care book. Sold over 90 million copies, in fact, doesn't quite fit, but it's sold more than that, and I think it's the second best-selling book only to the Bible. So Dr. Spock got a lot of things right uh, in his advice, but one of the things he didn't get right was about his advice about how to put your baby to sleep. So he used mechanistic reasoning. So disadvantages to a baby sleeping on his back, if he vomits, it's more likely to choke on the vomit. I think it's preferable to accustom a baby to sleeping on his stomach from the start. So if you think about how many copies this was selling, and still sells in fact, you can think about the impact of that sort of advice. And another, if, you, if you're not familiar with testing treatments, it's, it's available freely on, as a PDF book, uh, Autobuy. But this, it's a great book with so many examples in it. But if you look at the timeline to what happened, so Dr. Spock, he produced an edition, in, in that edition he talk, uh, talked about putting babies on their backs. In this edition he switched, changed his mind, said, oh, babies should be put on their fronts. And if you look at the timeline to what happened, First study suggests harm, second study suggests harm. By the mid-1980s, third study, three further studies suggest harm. Campaigns started to be launched to advise parents to put their babies back on their back, back to sleep, just being one of them. And in fact, it wasn't until the mid-2000s that the first systematic review was published about this. And in fact, this is what the systematic review, so I'll talk very briefly, but if you look at, these are all the studies that were done exploring this. These are all observational studies. 
And actually, if you map them out on a meta-analysis, everyone happy with a meta-analysis? Yep. So if you, if you map them out and look at the summary, summary results here, over a four-fold increase in cot deaths from putting the babies on their front. But if you reanalyze that, looking at what they call cumulative meta-analysis, so what, what you've got here is the same study, Carpenter, Carpenter, but what they've done is they've effectively said, well, next time this study came about, or this study came out in 1970, let's add the data to that, to that, and come up with a new summary statistic. Then Beale did that, so let's add it. So each time, the confidence intervals are getting narrower, and you're building up a picture. So my question is at what point, given that this is the line of no effect, statistically significant on either side, at what point would you have known the result to that? Yeah, so by 1970, you should have known that putting babies on their um, front is bad. And yet all these studies were done thereafter. And the advice continued. So that's about, yeah, by 1970. Another example, who's heard the story of Vioxx? Some have, okay. So Vioxx, um, originally marketed as a drug for, as an anti-inflammatory, so for arthritic pain uh, and, and basic pain relief. And here, here's some of the advertising, quite emotive. Sometimes you can improve two lives with a single prescription. Very nice. Sometimes you can ruin lives with a single prescription. So, but Vioxx is an interesting story because years after we understood what cumulative meta-analysis is and the value of systematic reviews, we're still having problems. So this is now in the 2000s. <coughs> Withdrawn from the, two, from the market in 2004 after concerns about increased cardiovascular risk, yeah, particularly heart attacks. And then after its withdrawal, a systematic review looked back at all the studies published by um, the manufacturer and said, actually, at what point should trials of uh, rovicoxib Vioxx have been stopped? So again, this is a cumulative meta-analysis. So these are the st this is the year here. And as you go from 97, each one is a trial, but they're adding on the results of the previous trial to the next one, and so on. So when would, when would you have known that Vioxx was harmful? Probably around 2000. Yeah, you're right. Probably about here. Well, you can see a trend emerging. So all these trials, why on earth were they done? Okay. So that's a, a lack of understanding about the value of systematic reviews and not doing them timely. Okay. But equally, I was going to say, isn't it concerning that loads were done and it's showing that... So all of them were not statistically significant. That's why they kept going on in the way and then once one was, well, they, yeah, I mean, they, but they, they, they may, they were, well, there were flaws with some of these designs as well. So they each trial learned from the next. But the point is, by this point, they should have stopped doing any more trials. All this, all this data here was unnecessary. You're randomizing people to harm. That's a good question, just because it looks like, I guess that second study of 2000, is it because it's so large, why you don't see such a huge, relative to the other changes where it's kind of flip-flopping back and forth? And Which one? This, oh, this one, from there yeah. to there. Yeah, yeah, and it could be the size. So suddenly you get a better powered study yeah. and you see a, a true effect or, or a, a reflection of a true effect. Yeah. Why do they continue? What's, what's the reasoning? Why do they continue? Why? Market forces, if you want to be cynical. Prove a point. 
So I guess you could make an argument, I, again, I, not knowing about the design plausibilities, that maybe that, that one trial in two, the, the second one in 2000 might, there might have been some flaws with that study that caused, caused things to shift in the wrong direction. You know, and so maybe those other this studies one. that follow are actually worthwhile to show that trend continuing. I, I don't know. That's cumulative, isn't yeah. it, the That's cumulative, yeah. That study isn't 13,000 patients. Yeah. No, but I think what you're saying, you're saying is there's a, there's a fair jump from 5193 yes. to 30, yeah, so, so, yeah. Okay, so, remember I told you 50% of trials are not published. So failure to publish relevant research promptly or at all. So this kind of, one of, and this is talks about bias, one of them in particular, reporting bias. Everybody familiar with the different types of reporting bias? I'll, I'll just talk you through some of them anyway. Um, so great resource. Cochrane Handbook here, beautiful table here about types of reporting bias. Publication bias, so publication or non-publication of research findings depending on the nature of the direction of the results. Time lag bias, so a rapid or delayed publication based on the type of result you get. And so on, so I can go through a couple more. Multiple publication bias, multiple or singular publication of research findings depending on the nature and the direction of the results. And you see this sort of, I mean that particular, I've seen that recently with some of the some of the trials around anticoagulants, you know, it's chopping and slicing um, data into different publications. Um, and in fact, it's the same trial. So it just adds to the confusion. Um, location bias, citation. Outcome reporting, and I'm going to talk about this a little bit later. Selective reporting of some outcomes, but not others, depending on the nature and the direction of the result. And I'll talk about that. Um, it's all very, very common. I mean, even today, I don't know if anybody heard, did anyone hear that report about some new dietary recommendations today? In the news. No, you've probably been sitting in a classroom, um, which is which is great. Uh, but it's been on the news today about some new some collaboration talking about new dietary, and they produced a document which is they called a guideline, and in fact it wasn't. And it's basically an example of citation bias. They just cherry picked various citations and they put it together in a document, then press released it. This is, this is the fat and carbs. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Fat and carbs. So it's an example of citation bias. There was no systematic way that they got the um, data. Okay, so if you want to know a little bit about this, say you're, you're quoting something in any of your uh, assignments or thesis, this is a great paper to know. And in fact, it's been cut off, but you're welcome to have the slides with all the slides. Um, heavily cited, just sort of basically look systematically at all of the issues around publication bias. And basically found all that, all that, all the, all that um, examples I gave you, found examples empirically in all, almost all those areas. So uh, good research um, uh, point to look at. Dissemination of research finding is likely to be a biased process, overall conclusion, massive review. And when you look at some of the examples, this is one of the uh, 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 previous systematic reviews, when they looked at publication bias in clinical trials due to the direction of effect, whether they were positive or negative, whether the results were positive or negative. Uh, uh, published in the Cochrane Library as a Cochrane Review. Association between publication and statistical significance or direction of the results were examined. Trials with positive findings were more likely, about four times more likely, to be published than trials with negative or null findings. Positive findings tended to be published after four to five years, negative findings after six to eight years. So there was that example of that, that delay. Okay, bias or unusable reports. Another reason why research is wasted. So this is, this is, this is about sort of publication of, of data, reports that we simply cannot use in clinical practice. Okay, who has heard of the story of study 329? Okay, well, I'll tell you the story. 
So this was a study, and 329 refers to the, uh, the study report, and this is the publication from that study report. And it was a clinical trial sponsored by GSK about the drug paroxetine. And it was looking specifically about the use of it as an antidepressant versus placebo in adolescent, um, adolescents with major depression. Yeah, so quite, quite an important area, very important area clinically. This publication is here and published in 2001. So, you know, this is not years and years ago. This is, this is you know, it's just reasonable things that people can remember. So 2001, the report was published and it presented four outcomes, all favoring paroxetine, all showing paroxetine works for this, 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 and this. As I said, the trial was sponsored by the manufacturer and the report contained the words that the drug was generally well tolerated and effective. And on face value, you think, okay, fine, well, we'll critically appraise that. Uh, and yep, seems like a reasonable trial, done fairly well. And two million, I mean, this is a sort of impact, two million prescriptions were issued for children and adolescents in 2002 alone. So it just goes to show about the widespread use of this particular drug. But when we're critically appraising an RCT, we're only really critically appraising the data that we're seeing. You know, if we're, if we're, if we're appraising you know, a PDF version of that, um, we're only appraising the data we see. What about the data that we don't see? And this is a great example, or a bad example, if you like. So <coughs> this is an example of selective reporting. So I told you that, that they reported four outcomes, all favoring. If you go back in time and look at the actual study protocol for that trial, and the study was titled 329, and the study data, they actually, so not four outcomes, they actually stipulated that they'd have two primary outcomes, and six secondary outcomes in this study, in this trial. And what they also did, which they sort of didn't fully allude to, but they said that they were going to measure 19 additional outcomes in the study. Now, of the two primary outcomes and the six secondary outcomes, none of them showed favorable results. So they binned them. Of the 19 remaining outcomes that they just happened to measure, all but four showed a favorable result. So the ones that didn't were bint. And what happened to the four? They ended up getting into the paper. So all the primary, the pre-specified primary and six secondary outcomes disappeared. And as I said, it's, it was only until 2015 here that the full data analysis was properly put together. And this article in the BMJ, Restoring Study 329, the harms of the paroxetine, and, and they looked at another antidepressant, imipramine, in the treatment of major depression. <coughs> so, and concluding, neither paroxetine nor high-dose imipramine showed efficacy for major depression in adolescents, and there was an increase in harms with both drugs. Clinically significant increase in harms, including suicidal ideation and behavior, mm. and other serious adverse events in the paroxetine group. So again, all because of selective outcome switching. Right, so another thing, so we talked about selective outcome switching. Another issue about the, the way that studies are designed and the flaws in their, in their design. So this is, again is a really nice paper um, looking empirically at that. And again, I'll put the link there if you're interested. 
So looking at flaws in design, conduct, and analysis in RCTs and the systematic reviews that include those RCTs, and the, the, basically the effect that that has, potentially erroneous conclusions with serious consequences for patients. And what they found when they did this empirical work, so they searched for sources of bias from poor study design within a defined sample of studies, and they, they identified nearly 1,300 studies, trials. And of these, about 43% had at least one domain at high risk of bias, i.e. from poor methods. And they went on to explore these reasons and found that all, much of this, if not all of it, could have been avoided. So people are still producing research that is flawed in its design, which could have been prevented and affects our ability to use that or potentially use that research. And you know, we should have learned by now from examples like study 329 about the importance of actually staying we're going to do something and then actually doing it and presenting what we've done. Okay, there must be some good news, surely. So I thought what I'd do is just talk to you a little about some of the good news that's out there as well. And there, there are changes, and, and I'm sure you all know about some of these already as well. Okay, so I I'll, thought I'd I'll give you a few examples of what the NHS is doing. So a lot of our funding comes from the National Institute for Health Research, which is the, the research arm of the NHS. Some of you may have funding from them as well, uh, or be very familiar with them. And again, they're, they're aimed to improve the health and wealth of the nation through research. And in fact, they've just celebrated their 10-year anniversary. They've been around for 10 years now, and it feels like they've been around for a lot longer because given the amount of um, development that's come from their, their, work, uh, their um, support. Um, just to give you a bit of background, so in, in their annual report 2014-15, they spent about, that's a billion, isn't it? About a billion, and you can see how they break down. They, they, they spend a lot on building capacity through training, individual programs, and infrastructure, so that's big, um, big grants for you know setting up units, schools, etc., research schools, and so on. Um, and then you can see the sort of areas that they spend their money in. So cancer, mental health, which is which is important to see that mental health <coughs> is well recognised, and so on. So they spend a, a lot, and they're they're reflective of needs as well, or they try to be certainly. But they're also reflective and take the what we've been talking about, the value and the importance of research um, and adding value to research. So building on what Ian Chalmers and Paul Glasgow originally put forward in 2009 in the Lancet, they sort of had a whole, have a whole section of ensuring that every research project that goes through them um, meets at least most, if not all of these pillars for adding value. And I thought that's quite, that's quite nice. So when you're designing research yourself, either for an assignment or actually when, you're, when you are um, principal investigator yourself, if you're not already, that this is actually a great resource to have a look at, to kind of think about, actually, if I want to go for funding, you know, I've got to make the case for my research. It needs, to be, it needs to be of value. So they've got some great resources there as well. And actually, you can see their, their sort of their mindset. We were talking right at the start about the value of basic research and that translational gap between applied research. So if you think just at the top line here, about what we're talking about, invention, so they're talking about basic research here, <coughs> to evaluation, and then to adoption, and then diffusion in health systems, right from the basic research. You can see where the funding is now coming and how much the National Institute for Health Research focuses on this, bridging that, that gap that we talked about right at the start. So Medical Research Council in the UK will focus mostly on basic research um, and developmental research, so innovation in, in, in basic sciences. And then they sort of have this joint funding stream where they both fund 
this where they start to evaluate mechanisms and then and so on these are the big units and so on different different programs right through as you see here to patient care commissioning and patient care so it just kind of gives you the way that things are changing for the better another important point and we talked about this about doing research that really matters um, and this is something that the NIH has picked up on as well so questions being researched are the most important to patients the publics and clinicians as well Everyone heard of the James Lind Alliance? No? Okay. So it was set up by Ian Chalmers of the Cochrane, who was involved with um, setting up the Cochrane Library. But uh, in the early 2000s, set up the James Lind Alliance, co-set up with this, the James Lind Alliance, which has subsequently been adopted by the NIHR, the National Institute of Health Research, as a form of actually getting a more formalised process for setting research questions to the research community like us um, that actually stem from issues that really matter to patients. Um, so one of the main innovations was the idea of setting up what they call priority setting partnerships, PSPs, <coughs> which specifically focus on bringing patient carers, clinicians, as groups coming together and they discuss and identify, and they're different, it's, it's more than discussion, it's a sort of quite a formalized process to identify in certain clinical conditions, where are the uncertainties? Where are the uncertainties in practice or in, in care? And the aim is to ensure that those who fund health research, like the NIHR, uh, or those who apply for research, actually know what really matters to patients. And just as an example, so, and they're increasingly starting to publish their process. So if you are interested in, in patient public involvement in research and the value, um, it's worth looking up some of the work that they're doing. So here's an example. So this is published in the BMJ Open uh, around setting research priorities for patients undergoing shoulder surgery. And this sort of talks about the process. So they send out a survey, gather the respondents, <coughs> put them together, the other respondents, uh, put them together to see which certain certainties could be taken forward to the next stage. So they identify those that are out of their scope, but those that are relevant. It's quite a systematic process. Um, remove duplications, compare the uncertainties taken, uh, brought forward to existing evidence and actually identify from that where there are evidence gaps take that to the next level whereby they'll have a bit more of a roundtable meeting steering group reviewing the results of the above and then finalizing a set of core research priorities in a particular area and that's just for patients undergoing needing shoulder surgery and this is an example so what they then come up with is what they call the top 10 of research priorities from this sort of process and you can see and I won't, I won't read it all for you but um, you can just sort of see so some of the things where there actually there isn't an evidence base for. We're doing it, or, it or, or it's a question that matters to patients, but there isn't an evidence base there. So, for example, <coughs> let's have a look. Here we go. Are patients, including old, older age groups with rotator cuff tendon tears, so that's a tear in your shoulder, uh, best treated with surgery or physiotherapy? We don't have the answer. The, there is no answer out there. Uh, and yet both those are in clinical practice, but there's uncertainty. So it's just highlighting the method that they use to identify these research priorities. So here's a top tip if you're a researcher. If you're interested in identifying areas to kind of go and have a look at their website because there'll be, there'll be a richness of uncertain, unanswered questions for you to kind of explore. Uh, and again, highlighted by the fact that they have been through a process um, that matters to patients and users. <coughs> things are not, things are still, there's still a room for improvement. So in this scoping um, audit, again, sorry, the reference has been cut off but they look to see out of clinical trials for a number of clinical areas published they compared sort of what were the 
the JLA partnership setting priorities compared to the number of the registered trials in that area. So just to sort of cut that, uh, sort of make it simplify, basically the long and short of it is registered trials in a particular area were more, fo more focused on, on drugs, vaccines and uh, biologicals. But actually what matters to the partnership, uh, p the PSPs and patients was more around um, disease management to do with education, training, service delivery, psychological therapy. So it just highlights the fact that a lot of the commercial trials are not necessarily meeting the needs of patients. Okay, last few minutes. So everyone heard of all trials? Okay, if you haven't, we talked earlier about the fact that around half of all clinical trials have never been reported. <coughs> this was a campaign set up, <coughs> excuse me, a few years ago now to kind of really push this, that actually this is just not on. And there's Ben Goldacre, who works with us at, the, at CBM, uh, one of the founders, just kind of pushing the agenda. Actually, all trials conducted should have all trials published in full reports. There should be no hidden um, data. And, you know, there's a catalogue, as I said, and we've just looked at a few examples of, of where uh, that has caused harm and confusion. Um, and so they, they want all, all, um, all pharmaceutical companies, academic institutions, and so on, to, if you register a trial, you publish your findings, and it must be transparent and accessible. And I think one of their, they say on their website, one of their landmark moments was when they got a massive pharmaceutical company to sign up to all trials, to say, yes, okay, we agree with your, um, with your policy, and we will ensure that all our trials are published and available freely from all our registered trials. Now, <coughs> what's interesting is we're looking at whether that's currently being done at the moment. So we're auditing that, what Ben is, and we're helping and supporting that. So it is a step in the right direction, but there's still much, much more work to do. Increasing the value of systematic reviews. Now, I've re recently argued that every health researcher should do a systematic review at the start of their training. Some may disagree, but there's so much value in it. It's a lot less expensive than doing a clinical trial, and it'll probably make you do your clinical trial a lot better if that's what you want to do. But I'm not the only one who's appreciating the value <coughs> of systematic reviews. So this from the NIHR about um, ensuring that every, every trial they fund, particularly through the health technology assessment, is funded when, only <coughs> when you know about the, the evidence that's available already. Only when you know what's available already will we look into supporting your, your trial. And so this is one of their, again, <coughs> from that website I showed you about adding value to research. And they provide guidance notes as well. So what do we mean by that? So they explain to you kind of, you know, uh, ideally a systematic review, but if not a systematic assessment, at least of the current evidence as well. And they sort of produce this um, guidance note for applicants to make sure that happens. Is it happening? Well, in fact, people are auditing it now. So looking at just one program, the Health Technology Assessment Trial Planning and Design from the NIHR, they looked to see of the trial, of 47 funded trials, 47 funded trials during this period here, only five didn't reference a systematic review. And all those five gave a clear re reason why they didn't, which was justified. When they re-audited in 2013, all trials funded in 2013 referenced the systematic review um, in their proposal. So things are improving, but not quite, not, not quite there, but they're heading in the right direction. Making reports more usable, reducing outcome switching. Is, everyone, is anyone familiar with Compare? So this is work that we're doing at the moment led by Ben and five medical students who are putting their time in to support it. 
and two clinical academics, one of which is me. And what, effectively what the idea behind Compare is, is to, was to prospectively look at trials as they're being published in the top five major journals and actually compare, hence the name, their protocol for that trial to what they published and to see whether there are any outcomes. We talked about study 329. See whether there's any outcomes that have been switched, lost, changed, altered, and so on. And if they've given a reason for it and it's justifiable, okay, fair enough. But if they've just suddenly mysteriously disappeared into that bin that we showed earlier, why is that? So the next stage was to write to the journal and say, and you often have to do that within two weeks of the publication. This, this, public, this publication is in your journal, blah, 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 blah. We've noticed that the protocol says this. Is there a reason why this? We'd like to highlight it to the authors. And sometimes there have been authors replied back and said, blah, 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 blah. You know, this is something that we have considered, but these are the reasons why that we, we, we switched. Or, you know, or, or they've said sometimes, you've misunderstood. You've got the trial. You've got the understanding wrong. But it's actually been really interesting to see what the sort of response is. And, and of the 67 trials checked, only nine were perfect. And this was, this, was, this was only done last year, and it's still ongoing, the correspondence between all these trial authors and the journals. So when somebody publishes a trial, is the protocol available for you to look at? It should be. It's not always. And then, so who's got time to go through and check that everything in the protocol is in the Well, five medical students <laughs> and, and, and two clinical academics and us. But, but okay, well, okay, well, let me flip the question. You tell me, who should be doing it? Should it be the reviews? Yes. Funders? Whoever's going to publish it in their journal, you should check that before you publish it in your journal that it's legitimate, basically. Is that, yeah, I was going to ask, is that the point of peer review? Um, and in fact, that's what we put to some of the journals. And that's why some of the most vitriolic, if you like, exchanges have been with the journal editors, not so much with the authors. Uh, and I'll just give you an example, but have a look at Compare, you, you'll find it. We've, and there's lots of blogs around what we're doing it, why we're doing it, and so on. Um, but it has been an enormous resource to do it, but I think a very valuable one. And we talked about that same point. So one of the interesting discussions we've been having is with the Annals of Internal Medicine, one of the top five journals that we've been discussing it with. And they were fairly resistant to, to what Ben and, the, and, and us were doing. Uh, and actually, there was quite a a fairly heated exchange and we've logged all the heated exchanges in our in the blog so you can read all about it very transparently but actually only recently because of the pressure and the dialogue um, they've actually changed their policy now only in the last few weeks maybe a month or so and so this is an example that's been reported uh, in fact well that's a few days ago so journal to publish clinical trial protocols so they've now actually changed their, <coughs> their their policy about making sure that protocol as you say are published next to their, their trial and I suspect internally they'll make sure that uh, as you're saying as well that the peer through the peer review process or editorial process um, that the outcomes are much much more closely scrutinized okay so a more broader um, way of reducing waste is through a new initiative called the reward uh, program reward campaign and it's a matter of a number of journals, um, researchers, here's our CBM, and it goes, the list goes on down here, talking about, talking to each other, partnering up, but actually kind of making a commitment to ensure they can do whatever they can to reduce research waste. So again, a, a nice resource and all the related content, if you, if you are interested in research, it goes on for pages and, uh, uh, below this about sort of some of the, the reasons behind it, the ways, the citations, and some of the clinical examples that we've talked about today as well.
Okay, and I'm just like literally, I, was, I think it's 45 minutes, so this is the last minute. I'm just going to leave you with one last um, paper, which I think would be well worth reading, uh, and a final thought. Um, written by Doug Altman, Doug Altman, um, who's a professor here um, in Oxford, about the scandal of poor medical research. And this was written in 1994, so 22 years ago now. Um, but just very one overriding line, which you know, is something never to forget. We need less research, better research, and research done for the right reasons. Really good paper. Okay, thanks very much for listening. <laughs>